0: So I'd like to begin, we pulled the house lights up, with a question I'd like you to contemplate. We bless our children as they head to their appointed places. Does God speak to us? Does God have a personal word, a rhema word, for us? And how does God speak to us? Well, it's clear from the Bible that God did speak to people in the Bible. We know that God, beside the burning bush, spoke to Moses, saying, Take off your sandals, for the ground whereon you're standing is holy ground. And he revealed himself to Moses as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God did speak to Moses. And then to Joshua, Moses' successor. God spoke to him. He was outside the city of Jericho. And he was wondering what the battle strategy would be. Shall we kind of dig under the walls, climb over the walls, kind of smash down the walls? And God spoke to him and said, you know, march around the city for seven days. Seventh day, you know seven laps, and then shout and blow those ram's horn and the walls will come tumbling down. God spoke to Joshua. God spoke to Abraham. He said, leave behind your country and your people and go to a land I will show you. You see, Abraham had to learn the voice of God. And then he said to him, you know, by this time next year, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And his name's going to be called Isaac Laughter. And then, When Isaac grew up, he said, take your son, your only son, into the mountain and there offer him to me. You see, Abraham had to learn to hear the voice of God. And then in the New Testament, we see that in the book of Acts, God continues to speak. Through Jesus, God spoke to the apostles. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised. You know, John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 8, the Spirit of God told Philip to go down the desert road and go near a chariot with an Ethiopian eunuch on board. And then God spoke to Saul and Barnabas at the city of Antioch. He said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And during the night, God spoke to Paul in a vision of a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. God clearly then spoke to people in the Bible. So it's clear that God speaks or has spoken to people in the Bible. Is it as clear that God is still speaking to people today? Do you believe that God speaks to you? See, I believe that God is still speaking. I was talking with a woman recently and she was driving up 95 and the Spirit said to her, pull over and stop at the rest area. And she said, Lord, I'm only seven miles from home. And the spirit said, clearly, pull over and stop. So she pulled over. She didn't know she was quite that weary. She put her head back, and she fell asleep for about an hour. When she awoke, she resumed her journey. She climbed a hill on 95. And there, when she saw the crest of the hill, she looked at the carnage beneath her. About 10 tractor trailers were involved in a massive car accident. Some were overturned. Some were jackknifed. Some were in the median strip. About 30 cars were involved. And the Spirit of God said to her, This is what I spared you from. I was listening to Catherine Hickam last Monday. She was um, away speaking somewhere, with, left her husband in charge, was a little dangerous, taking care of their son, Taylor. Now, Taylor has ADHD, and Taylor has a friend, and whenever Taylor hooks up with his friend, they get in trouble, Right? So the father perhaps didn't hear the instructions about who he's not allowed to stay with, so Taylor went to this friend's house. In the middle of the night, Taylor and his friend decided to play this game called um, Ding Dong, The Witch is Gone, basically knocking on windows. So they went to a neighbor's house and kind of knocked on a window, and they ran away. Then they went to another neighbor's house. This is not an idea of kids to follow, okay? Knocked on a windows, window of a neighbor, and they ran away. Then they knocked on a door, and they ran away. But one of the neighbors called the police, and Taylor was arrested. So when she came home, she said to her husband, how'd the weekend go? She said, he said, Taylor got arrested. (laughs) Now, she didn't know if she was madder at her husband or madder at Taylor. But she was really, really, really mad. I mean, like, hit somebody kind of mad. And the Spirit of God said to her, Is this about you and your anger, or is this really about Taylor? You see, I believe that God still speaks to people. Can you imagine any relationship where there's no communication? What would you think about two people meeting together for coffee, and you know they've been at Starbucks for about an hour before you arrive, and you say to them, what were you guys talking about? And they said, nothing. (laughs) Nothing. I thought you two were really good friends. You see, Jesus said, I call you my friends because I let you in on everything I learned from the Father. I believe where God wants to take us is into a greater intimacy with himself. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. We have to attune ourselves to the voice of God when he begins to speak. One of our men was in a church. and In the church they had about 20 new births. And the nursery was really near the, near the sanctuary, and when, when the babies would cry, <laughs> the men would do nothing, but the mother would respond. she would hear her babies cry and go. Now why would the mother go to her baby? Because she was up in the middle of the night and she knew the baby's cry, the baby's voice. You see, intimacy is getting to know the voice of God, actually discerning between the voice of the enemy and the voice of God himself. Because God wants to have intimacy with his people. Hear me now. God wants an intimate relationship with you. Primarily, he'll speak to you through his word. If you say, God, speak to me, illumine me through your spirit, I'm ready to receive. But God's spirit will also speak to you through usually your heart. You hear the voice of God at the level of your heart. So if you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 18. We talk about God speaking to his people, closing out our series in the book, Book of Acts. We read in Acts chapter 18 that after this, Paul left Athens and went to the city of Corinth. There's three things we know about Corinth. One of which was, there's a Bible if you need one. There's, um, the city was cosmopolitan. That is to say, Corinth was a very diverse city. People from all over the world lived in Corinth, from Africa, from Asia, from Europe. It was a very commercial city. There was a lot of trade going on there. It was on the trade route, north and south, and east and west, sort of between the Ionian and Aegean Sea. And it was also a very carnal city. There was a temple in Corinth to Epaphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and beauty. The Romans called her Venus. The great temple of Epaphrodite stood on the Acrocorinth, the rocky hill overlooking the city. And every evening, about a thousand prostitutes came down from the temple to the streets to ply their trade. Corinth was known as the hub of sensual indulgence. Sailors from all over the world passed through Corinth to indulge themselves. In fact, there was a term in that day to Corinthianize or to play the Corinthian which meant to live a sexually immoral life. It was something like our San Francisco or Las Vegas or like Bangkok, Thailand or like Amsterdam in the Netherlands or Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, a city known for its gross sexual immorality. See, Paul, when he came to this city, he was very alone. We know from the beginning, God has said, it's not good for a man to be alone. Yet we find ourselves often alone. We pack our bags, we travel to a city, and we stay alone. Paul did not have the benefit of his teammates here at Corinth. And he had been hurt emotionally and physically in previous encounters. And oftentimes when we're hurt, it's easy enough to protect ourselves. Building up walls, trying to keep ourselves from being hurt again, isolating and hiding ourselves. We're designed for a relationship with people, yet I hear from people all the time I'm feeling so alone. I'm feeling terrified. I'm feeling overwhelmed by life. I'm feeling abandoned. I'm feeling hurt. I think about a soldier far from home deployed living in a faraway city. I think about a college student on a campus somewhere, feeling that aloneness in their campus setting. I think about the person living in a city. Perhaps they had a relationship, but now that relationship has disintegrated, and they find themselves alone again. Students can feel alone in their school. Friends can make choices that disappoint them, even turn against them. Athletes on a team can feel alone. Other players don't acknowledge their existence. Other players have their circle of friends and do not let them in. One of the ugliest words in the English language is exclusivism. I push you away. People vying for positions, feeling threatened, not helping people feel welcome. So how do you deal with your own aloneness? Paul in the city was alone. Interesting enough, though, that he, there came to the city a man named Aquila, verse 2, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. I love the name names Aquila and Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them because he was a tent maker, as they were, and he stayed with them and he worked with them. While Paul was living in Corinth, he was all alone. To support himself, he was a tentmaker. Now, tentmaker is a term we use to describe someone who is bivocational. They make a living with their trade. You may be a teacher by day, but your mission by night is to be a mentor. You see, the rabbis had a saying that said, if a father will not teach his son a trade, he'll make his son into a thief. So, Paul's father had taught him the trade of being a tent maker. And now, this is how he made a living. So, in the marketplace where Paul loved to hang out, he meets Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla were Jewish, and they'd been forced out of Rome, displaced, and they were subject to this decree by Claudius. Now, Paul could easily identify with them because he was Jewish. And he had been run out of town more than once. And he was a tent maker just like they were. It wasn't long before Aquila and Priscilla came to Christ. Because Paul went to see them, and he stayed with them, and he worked with them. If you're an educator, there are opportunities you're going to have with other educators to influence them. If you're in business, there will be people who work beside you, or clients, whom you can influence. You have opportunities, and you should avail yourself of this in situations God gives to build relationships and share your faith in the workplace. The workplace is a natural environment to build friendships. There's a woman in my small group, and she works in this office. In the office, there's a Muslim man, and the Muslim man finds himself in a crisis. And he said to her recently, would you pray for me and my family? Because your God listens to your prayers. You see, her God, his God is Allah, a very impersonal God. But her God is Jesus, an Abba Father. And the man has seen her witness and her life and her prayers, and has asked her to pray for him. Paul was an evangelist looking for opportunities in the workplace, in the school, wherever, in the the marketplace, to share his faith. So verse 5 says that when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. You see, while he was alone, he had to earn his own living. But when his team came to him, Timothy and Silas, they brought gifts from the Macedonians. Now Paul was fully supplied. So he devoted himself exclusively to preaching. He would testify that Jesus was bruised for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, that the King of Israel had come and died on a cross for our sins and been risen from the dead. But when they opposed Paul, they became abusive, and he shook out his clothes in protest. So let me ask you a question. How do you form good boundaries with difficult people? Does anybody here have a difficult person in your life? Just one of you? Really? Do we live in the same world? Are you all living among difficult people? I really want to ask you guys, how do you form good boundaries with difficult people? Healthy people set boundaries to stay healthy. We need to teach our children boundaries to feel safe, In this world, we need to be able to say things like no. The greatest boundary word there is, is no. You ought to practice saying no like 10 different ways like no, like no, like no, like no, no, no. You got to work at saying no lots of different ways because to have good boundaries, you need to work at saying no, or I disagree, or I will not or I choose not to, or stop that, or that's wrong, or I don't like that, or that's really bad, or I don't like it when you touch me there. Kids who fail to set boundaries are very vulnerable. What is happening at Penn State is a massive violation of young men's boundaries. A coach to whom it's hard to say no to apparently, allegedly, took advantage of his position and sexually molested many. We have to teach our children to set boundaries. No, I'm not comfortable taking a shower with you. No, you can't sleep in my bed. No, I won't sleep in your bed. No, I can't stay here. I'm calling home. Now, when my kids were growing up, I said to them, look, If you ever find yourself in a situation where your boundaries are being violated, you can call your dad, and I can be there in five minutes. I can speed, you know. I can get to that place where you are, and I can extract you if you call me. So my son, Chris, was 12 years old, and he was in the basement. And some guys began showing some stuff, you know, videos that should not be looking at. And They said, excuse me, may I make a phone call? He went upstairs, he called his dad, and I came and picked him up and swept him away, took him home. When he was thirteen years old, we went to see a movie. I've forgotten the name of the movie. And we paid about eight fifty to get in. About seven minutes into the movie, Chris said, Dad, we need to go. I said, What? We just paid eight fifty for this movie. It may get better. He said, Dad, we gotta go. We gotta get out of here now. I said, Let's go you've got to practice boundaries with your life. If you don't have any boundaries, you're very vulnerable living in this world. You see, a boundary defines your own backyard, what's yours, and puts a fence around that back boundary, bound that backyard. But the word that comes up, so often we talk about boundaries, is the word they. They won't accept me if I say no. They'll get angry if I set limits. They won't talk to me if I tell them how I feel. <laughs> you know, from a father's perspective, I don't really care what they, they, what they feel. I just want you to be healthy, right? I want you to have healthy boundaries in your life. Paul, what he's saying now is, I am so done with this relationship. I am so done with you. I'm going to shake the dust out of my garment. I'm going to shake the dust off my sandals. I'm going to move on to what's next. He was practicing healthy boundaries. Boundaries enables us to move on from what's unhealthy into the next assignment. And it's kind of beautiful, really, because Silas and Timothy, um, you know, they moved their operation next door to a guy named Titius Justice. He was a Gentile. And then the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, becomes a believer. And he becomes baptized. And God seems to be moving through that city. It's a marvelous movement of the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul, as many Corinthians are coming to believe. But there was a problem. The problem really was inside the heart of the Apostle Paul. You see, he had not not healed from his wounds. He had been in the city of Philippi, and they arrested him on false charges, and they flogged him and threw him in prison. Then he'd gone to the city of Thessalonica, and there in that city, a riot erupted, and he was ejected from the city. He went to the city of Athens, the great intellectual center, and they scoffed at him, and he left feeling rejected. So Paul, in his spirit, was beginning to wonder whether he should sort of hang up his apostles' badge. Or well, they should just walk away and quit. So if you've ever wondered whether you should walk away and quit, God will have a word also for you. This was a specific word that God gave to Paul one night in a vision. Chapter 8 and verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid. The Lord began by talking to him, saying, Do not be afraid. Your fear is not from God. Let me say this to you The fears you feel are not from God. God has not given to us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. You see, in Paul's mind, he knew what would happen. The immediate future was predictable. Soon there would be a riot. People would be turning against him. He'd be arrested on false charges. He'd be flogged. He would suffer. Or to put it into football terms, Paul felt like a football. Every time the team scored, he was spiked to the turf. And then he was kicked the length of the field. And the better he performed, the more he was spiked and kicked. See, there was a pattern developing in his life. God had called him to preach the gospel. And every time he began taking new ground, the enemy counterattacked. Paul felt like a boxer who didn't want to answer the call for the next round. He felt like all the wind was taken from his sails. I just wonder where fear has a grip on your life. A fear of somebody's opinion. A fear of failure. A fear of the future. A fear of contracting some disease. My son, Josh, my youngest, is now driving. and I have great confidence in him, really. He's driving down 270 and driving up 270. My part has been to coach him. And now my part is to believe in him. Never make it about your fears, projecting your fears onto your children. You ever been afraid something bad was going to happen? Most of us are pros at borrowing trouble. We're waiting some, for something disastrous to happen. We know if we make a mistake, we'll get fired. And if we get fired, we won't have a job. And if we don't have a job, we won't have a house. If we don't have a house, we'll live in a box. We can sort of see our future, right? Or if I make a mistake in school, I'll flunk the course. And if I flunk the course, I won't get the scholarship. If I don't get a scholarship, I won't get to college. So we begin to fear, to live in fear, to live in a fear of failure, to to fear what someone would say about us, fear in our future. Paul is telling, God is telling Paul, do not be afraid. Fear is paralyzing, immobilizing, controlling, and fear is not of God. You want to learn how you get rid of fear? Fear the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. When your fear is of him, you lose your lesser fears of mankind. When your heart is filled with love, then less your heart can be filled with fear. So God teaches us over and over again to fear not, to stop worrying about tomorrow, to stop borrowing trouble. Because we are divinely loved, God's love casts out fear. Don't fear that you're not measuring up to someone's expectation. Don't fear being single the rest of your life. Don't fear admitting a mistake. Don't fear the opponent on the field. Don't fear cancer or Alzheimer's or Lou Gehrig's. Don't fear being alone because God says do not be afraid. And then he says keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Keep on ministering. You see, if Paul lives according to his fears, he begins shutting down. But if he's controlled by the Spirit, he has courage to press on. And God wants to give him boldness and courage to keep pressing on. To not be silent, but to keep on speaking. That's why Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Corinthians, said, When I came to you, I came with weakness and fear, with much trembling. My message was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So I have learned that when my strength is depleted, I have learned that when I am weak and I am weary, the Lord has a tool to use to pour his power into. When I cannot do it by myself, when I am relying upon God, I am a channel for God's power. And when you cannot do it by yourself, your strength has worn out. You are a channel for God's power to be flowing through. Weakness is the secret strength of God's most effective servants. So if you're feeling weak, you're feeling fearful, praise God. Because now is the time to speak and not be silent. Relying upon him, let his power flow through you in your weakness. Then he says, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack you and harm you. (laughs) I have been with you and I am with you now. As I see this scene, you know, here's Paul in Corinth. And it's like a quarterback who has a really good offensive line. Not like the Redskins, but a really good offensive line. And they're they're really blocking for him and protecting him. So he steps back up in the pocket and he's got the linemen around him protecting him. This was the picture given the Apostle Paul. No one's going to attack you and harm you in this city. I've given you a brief reprieve while you live in Corinth that I'm going to protect you. I'm going to put my divine hand of blessing upon you. Jesus said in this world you're going to face tribulation. There's going to be troubles and trials and difficulties. But he said in this city no one's going to attack you. And harm you because I am with you. And notice the last thing he said to him I have many people in the city. Your work will not be in vain. Those appointed to eternal life are going to receive eternal life. Paul, your life will not be fruitless. You're going to have a very fruitful time. He said, Let me tell you how I see your town. There's people in this town who do not know me. They do not have a relationship with me. They have a relationship to sin. And their sin is destroying them. There's young girls in this very city serving Epaphroditus, being prostitutes, giving themselves away wantonly, looking for love and giving themselves away. They've been brought up to sell themselves or give themselves away but they're longing to be free. They are slaves to their sin. You tell them, Paul, that I can set them free, that I am a healer and deliverer and savior. The love that they're really looking for, they can find from Jesus. And there's young men in this town who do not know me, who indulge their flesh with sexual immorality. Some of these men are married and crossing over lines, committing adultery. Many of them are single, indulging the flesh. They think they're free, but they're really slaves to their sexual passion. You tell them, Paul, I can set them free. And there's people in the city, he would say, same-sex attraction, men with men inflamed in their lust for one another, women violating the natural function. Paul, you tell them that I can set them free. They have all these anonymous encounters, at-risk behaviors, They're all tired. Their fleshly pleasures are just not doing it for them anymore. They're suffering deep guilt and shame and emptiness. You know, when my son Chris was up in Chicago living, they would go out on the streets. It would be about midnight on a Saturday night. There's a place in Chicago where there's homosexual transactions that happen. And the guys who were serving as homosexual prostitutes, could not even look you in the face. Such a deep level of guilt and shame. You tell them in Chicago that Jesus loves them. That Jesus has the power to heal them and set them free. That all the shame they're feeling was transferred to the cross. All the guilt of their life was transferred to the cross. They can turn to him and turn from their sin and find freedom. Recognize your work is not Now, I think one of the things they did in that that city was they regularly remembered the Lord's Supper. (laughs) Because as they came to Jesus, Jesus said, the very night he was betrayed, this is my bread, this is my body, which was broken for you. Take it in remembrance of me. And this cup, it reminds you of the blood that was shed for you, the great sacrifice I did for you for your freedom, for your salvation. Drink it in remembrance of me and do this, proclaim this, until I come back again. So really the bread and cup for us looks back to what Jesus has done for us. And it looks forward to Jesus coming to return. And it looks up to the God who sent Jesus. But it calls for us also to look inside to examine ourselves. Let's pray. Father, here we are in this room. And your spirit is here. You've come, Lord, to give us a personal word. A personal word, Father, that's just designed just for us. So Spirit of God, as you minister to that word, help us to become attentive and attuned to your voice. To somebody here, you've said, do not be afraid. Do not let fear govern your life. To somebody else you said, do not be silent. Keep on ministering. Don't let fears dominate your life. Give us courage and boldness, Lord. To somebody else you said, Lord, I am with you. I am present in your life. To somebody else you said, there's many in this city, Lord. Father, we believe that you've called us here for a purpose. We believe that we have a mission given from you. Father, with your spirit living inside of us, may we be faithful to do what you called us to do, to share this good news with our city, to go into the boardrooms, to go into the classrooms, to go into the recovery rooms, and share our hope in Jesus Christ. Father, as we hallow this moment, we quiet our hearts in your presence. We ask you, Lord, to examine us and bring to the surface our sin that we could confess it to you. Perhaps there's just an attitude you want to change in us. Maybe there's an action we've been taking. Maybe there's something, Lord, we haven't been doing. Whatever it is, Lord, that has blocked that fellowship with you in your very presence, we want to confess it. So, Father, we ask you to quiet ourselves now as we examine ourselves, being honest with you, entering into agreement with you, Lord, experiencing really deep communion. Out of that communion, Lord, may there come praises from our heart, thanksgiving to you, for you're a great and awesome God. Father, meet with us as we gather and celebrate communion together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be stations all around the room. Our praise team will be out playing. This is your moment. You don't have to wait for us to uh, say it's time to eat and drink. Um, There's a cross to which you can go. There's places to kneel here. There's people you can gather with. We hope this is a wonderful time of worship for you as we remember the Lord's body and his sacrifice by celebrating communion together.